You can open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Revelation. Um, if you don't know where that is in your Bible, <laughs> go to the, um, what is that, the dictionary and turn left a little bit. Just at the very end, Revelation chapter 1. We live in exciting times. If you don't have a Bible, we would encourage that you follow along with us. If you just give a little indication, the ushers are making their way through right now. They will drop a Bible off to you so that you can follow along. No takers on the Bibles? Good. You guys are ready. Ready for... Ready. Let's read the first three verses. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things which he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Have you ever read a book, or perhaps seen a film, that didn't end right? You spend all of this time reading or watching, and you come to the end only to find that there are unfinished storylines. There's loose ends, a lack of closure. There's not enough fodder given for future imaginative conclusion. And you find yourself thinking, you know, if only that were just five minutes longer or five pages deeper, that they could have just wrapped it up. They could have tied it all together and it all would have made sense. The book of Revelation is the last five minutes. It's the last five pages, if you would, of God's complete revelation to man. Beginning in the book of Genesis, a story started. A scene was set. A cast of characters was introduced. And a plot began to unfold. The further you read into the Bible, the deeper and more involved the plot becomes. Questions are raised. Confusing events and characters cross the pages. Things that don't maybe seem to fit or don't really make sense come across and they leave shadows in our minds. Subplots appear and then fade, catching our eye, but failing to reach our understanding, not really causing us to comprehend why those things are there and giving us an obscure sense that they're significant, yet leaving us in the shadows. And in many ways, we read through the scriptures, but the question still remains within our heart, what happens at the end? How does the story tie together? Well, the same thing happens with a life. You sitting here, your life is a story. You were birthed, and then you were given a set of circumstances to to work with, a hand of cards to play, if you would, as you began to develop and grow in this life. A personality was developed in a character in who you are. A plot began to form as your years ensue and go on. Things happen to you. Circumstances come and go. And we also have a sense that the things that are happening to us in the life that we live, that it's significant, that it means something, but yet sometimes it seems that it's in the shadows. It seems that there's something there to grasp at, but we don't really understand what it is. And we ask the question, what happens in the end? Well, whether it's the Bible that we read spiritually, or whether it's our lives that we live personally, as we come to the book of Revelation, we find out what happens in the end. Both as it concerns God's revelation through the pages of Scripture, but also as it reveals His will and His plan for our lives ultimately on into eternity. It gives sense to all that God has done and all that God is doing within our lives. It truly is the revelation that God gives. 
The book of Revelation gives to us the closure that ties everything together that God has done from the beginning until now. The book of Genesis tells us how the earth was created, but Revelation tells us how the earth will be destroyed. Genesis tells us the beginning of man's existence, Revelation, the end of man's existence, or where it's headed. Genesis tells us of Satan's deception and the trouble that it cast upon humanity. Revelation tells us of Satan's destruction and his future separated from humanity. Genesis tells us of the curse and its origin and how it's affected the lives of all of us. Revelation tells us of the curse's end and how God beat the curse. Genesis tells us how man was created in God's image. Revelation tells us that man will ultimately be in God's presence. In Genesis, there's a Redeemer promised. In Revelation, redemption is accomplished. In Genesis, we see Babylon's beginning, this worldly system that we operate within. But in Revelation, we see Babylon's bloodbath and how God will ultimately win. In Genesis, we see the lion of the tribe of Judah previewed. In Revelation, we see his presentation. In Genesis, we see the beginning of all of God's creation. And in Revelation, we see the end of all of creation. Genesis introduces us to God in his program, but Revelation reveals God to us in person. It truly is the closure of everything that we have scripturally. There are over 500 references throughout this 22-chapter saga that we have in front of us, 500 references to the Old Testament scriptures. It sheds light on them, and it receives light from them. It ties it all together, and in many ways, it becomes the master key for all of scripture. So... We're set for an exciting, maybe a little bit perplexing at times, but hopefully satisfying trip, journey through the book of Revelation uh, throughout these next couple of weeks. And I believe that God has an incredible blessing for us as we look at the things that he has told us ahead of time. Now the word Revelation, the very title of the book, is the Greek word apocalypsis. And it means, literally, an unveiling. Something that was previously hidden that is now clearly manifested. That's interesting, really, in its very concept that the title of the book is an unveiling. Because many try to take the book of Revelation, and rather than simply unveiling something that God has manifested for us, they complicate the book. They tie these things up in mystical and super-spiritual mysteries. But yet, that's not the purpose and the intention of the book at all, but rather it's to be an unveiling, something that previously wasn't known that was true, but that is now uncovered and clearly shown for us to see and enjoy and understand. Now, there's three things that I want to point out to you by way of introduction in these first three verses that John the Apostle gives to us as he is beginning this prophecy. He's going to show us the purpose for it. And and I'm not going to give them to you in, in exactly the specific order that he gives them to us, but you'll understand it's a very short passage, it's not too confusing. But the first thing that John tells us, the very purpose for this this book, this prophecy to be given to us, Right there in verse 1, he tells us to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now, I'll confess to you that there are some things in the book of Revelation that I don't perfectly understand. Now, I know you want to leave. You want to say, oh, man, that's it. I quit. And and just fold up your Bible and walk out the door and say, what a ripoff, you know. No, but there are some things within the book of Revelation that I don't understand perfectly. But as a whole, understand this and get it into your mind right from the very beginning. That the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. People will say, oh, we don't go there, we don't talk about that, oh, that's argumentative and controversial and all that. But listen, understand, it's an unveiling. It's a very simple thing. And overall, though there are perplexing things in it, It's not a hard book to understand. 
This is not a tying up of spiritual substance, but rather it's a simple unveiling of scriptural truth. It is something that is interpreted by scripture. It's something that is to be taken literally and as much as we can to be taken chronologically. And you'll find that as you just take it as it's laid out before us, it's very simple. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand the things that are written in the book of Revelation. Its purpose is to show you. He says, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Well, what does it mean to show? The word literally means to brief them concerning where they are and where they're going. So as to inform them to plan and act accordingly and to be prepared for what's coming. That that's what it means when it says that the purpose of these things is to show you what God's doing so that you also can be ready. Now, many churches, many Christians, many pastors will shy away from Revelation because they'll say, well, it's too hard to understand. Well, it's too confusing and it's too shadowing and there's too many opposing views and interpretations. And the worst of all that you'll hear from time to time is they'll say, well, that stuff that's written in Revelation is so far off into the future that it's irrelevant to us anyways. What an incredibly gross error. (laughs) as we're going to see both, you know, scripturally and also literally, hopefully. Everybody who teaches Revelation says the same thing, and I'm going to say it too, is that I hope I don't finish the book. Because the Lord returns before we get there. But the book of Revelation really is not a hard book to understand. Did you know that the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that has the table of contents written right in it? It has the table. It tells us right there how the book is broken down, how it's outlined. It's right there in chapter 1, verse 19. John writes, and Jesus speaks, and he says, Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Three things that Jesus tells John to write, and they make up the entirety of this whole book. Three things. First of all, the things which thou hast seen. Past tense. Second of all, the things which are presently. Present tense. And third of all, the things which shall be. That it will be hereafter. Things that are future tense that haven't happened yet. So the book breaks down into three sections. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. Past tense... Well, who's writing the book? It's the Apostle John. What is it that he had seen? Well, he had seen Jesus. In fact, in verse 2, he tells us that very plainly. He says that he bare record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. Past tense. What did John see? He saw Jesus. So, Revelation chapter 1. It's a vision of Jesus Christ. Crucified, resurrected, and glorified. That's chapter 1. He shows us Christ. He takes us right in to the throne room of God, and He shows us Jesus in His glory. The things that He saw, past tense. Then, chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, presently. Well, when John was writing this around the year 91 AD, what was going on presently? Well, John was in the middle of the church age. It was the time, the season, when Jesus Christ was building the churches. And so, chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters from Jesus unto seven churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. Seven letters to seven churches that are, if you would, a report card from Christ to the churches. Because that's what was going on presently in John's day. John was in the church age. He was an overseer and an apostle to and over the churches. So seven letters to seven churches that were literal, physical churches that existed in John's day. But they also have locally applicable messages. Meaning that the seven letters to the seven churches apply to any Christian or any church during any part of the church age. When you read the letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus, or to Pergamos, or to Smyrna, or to Thyatira, or to Laodicea, or to Philadelphia, you read those things there, and the struggles that they faced were the same struggles that we face as the church of Jesus Christ in our day. 
The victories that they enjoyed are the same victories that we enjoy. The pursuits and ambitions that are important to Christ there are the same pursuits and ambitions that are important to Christians today. And so they were literal churches that existed then, but the messages apply locally to churches today because we are still yet in the church age. This is still present tense for us. But what we'll find also as we get into chapters 2 and 3 is that not only are they literal churches that have messages that apply locally to us today, but we'll find that those seven churches represent seven different segments or sections of the church age. And perhaps John, when he was writing those things, didn't even realize that. But us looking back as we go through and read those things, we can see church history unfolding from each progressing letter as it goes onward and forward. And so chapters 2 and 3, the things which are presently seven letters to seven churches, the church age. But then, but then chapter 4, Jesus says right after this. After this, the future things, the things which shall be hereafter, the third section of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through the end of the book, are things that have not yet happened. Future tense, after the church age. In fact, the church is never again seen on earth throughout the book of Revelation until the end of the book when she comes back with Christ at the end of the tribulation. The church is gone by the time you get to chapter 4. Something happens and the church is no longer on earth. Well, chapters 4 through 22 are all future events, things that haven't happened yet. Chapters 4 and 5, John sees the church in heaven. He sees the heavenly scene open and he sees the church already there. Then in chapters 6 through 19, we have the tribulation on earth. A seven-year period of time where God pours out His judgment. Where God judges sin and pours out His wrath on those that rejected Christ. And those who persisted and continued in sin and that wouldn't repent and come to God and be forgiven. And judgment for that seven-year period of time is poured out on earth. And chapters 6 through 19 describe vividly and specifically what will take place during that seven-year period. Then in chapters 20 through 22, Jesus comes back to the earth. He puts an end to the battle of Armageddon that takes place at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation. And as he ends that battle, he ushers in a time of peace and prosperity upon the earth that will last for a thousand years. And then after the thousand years are over, there's some Events that we'll see that will take place and then the new heavens and the new earth come in. And we move on into our eternal habitations. And it's all there. It's laid out perfectly clear. The outline. Just follow the progression that's laid out for us in the book. The things which were, chapter 1, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and glorified. The things which are church history, the church age, seven letters to seven churches, chapters 2 and 3. And then the things which shall be after this, after the church age, chapters 4 through the end of the book. The church in heaven, the tribulation on earth, and then the return of Christ, the millennium, and the new heavens and the new earth. See, we're done. Let's pray. We've gone through the book of Revelation. No, there's a lot to look at, a lot to see. But it comes with a table of contents. It tells us right there how the book breaks down and how it's to be looked at and interpreted. You just follow the progression of the book. Now, I'll pause at this point and say parenthetically that if you do not have one already, it would be very wise for you to build a little file within your mind. I have one of these that it gets fatter and thicker depending on the season of my life. But a little file in your line that just has the subject heading on the top, wait for more information. Because perhaps there'll be some things that we'll see as you go through this that you'll say, I don't get that. That doesn't make sense to me. A beast full of eyes within, you know, I, I, that doesn't make sense. Listen, don't get discouraged and say, you know, this is over my head. This is uh, way too uh, philosophical or out there for me. Don't do that. Just have the file in your mind that says wait for more information and put it in there. 
Because what happens is you put stuff in there and you say, I'm just going to wait for more information. And then what happens is you study the Bible a little bit longer. You walk with Jesus for a couple more weeks or a couple more days. And he shows you what those things mean. And then you can take them out of that file and put them where they belong. You know, but it's wise to have that in you. You know, Mary in the scripture, you see constantly when you read of Mary, the mother of, of, of our Lord, that when the angel came to Mary and told her the things that were going to happen to her, she believed them, but she didn't quite understand them. So the Bible says over and over again that she kept these sayings in her heart. That she kept these sayings in her heart. It, it was that file that I'm talking about, the wait for more information. And in time, all the things that she heard that she didn't understand came to make sense. And then she was glad that she held on to them. And she's not the only one in Scripture that it talks about that did that. So if you don't have one already, build a file in your mind. But understand this above all, that the purpose of this book, the reason why it's here and the reason why we're studying it, is because Jesus wants to show you the things that He is going to do. He wants you to understand and to be prepared. Prepared for what? Well, he tells us. He says that God gave him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. You say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop, pause. You just said a word that tripped me up already. I'm already stumbled in this study of Revelation. Did you just use the word shortly? Did you just say things which must shortly come to pass? Because, wait, I'm not a Bible scholar or a theologian, but wasn't this written 2,000 years ago? If this was written 2,000 years ago, and here we stand 2,000 years away from it, and you're up there saying the things that are shortly going to come to pass, well, what does shortly mean? Because 2,000 years seems like an awful long time. Like I tell my wife, I'll be there in a minute. You know. I, can I wait 2,000 years? Sometimes I say, I'll be there in a minute. And she says, is that a minute or a football minute? Because <laughs> all she knows is that, and I say, there's a minute left in the game that I might still be there 15 minutes later. Some of you, when I say, Are you, I'll be there in a minute, you say, well, is that a preacher's minute? You know, because you say, I'm going to be done in a minute all the time. You know, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean when he says that these things will shortly come to pass? Well, listen, Peter, no, let me back up. Everyone who ever lived in the Christian faith from the time of Christ until now believed that Jesus Christ was going to return within their lifetime. Peter and Paul believed it. It's laced within their writings. The early church fathers believed it. The reformers believed it. Spurgeon and Tozer and even to the people that are, are, are waxing old now that are strong in the Lord. Even them, they're saying, it's going to happen in our day. Everybody said that. And listen, they were all wrong for the most part. Because they believed it, and it didn't happen, and they died, and the return of Christ never happened. Well, listen, Peter, the Apostle Peter, lets us in on a little secret. In 2 Peter chapter 3, discussing the second coming of Jesus Christ, he says this, 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Well, starting in verse 3, he says that knowing that in the last days there will be scoffers that will come. And they will say, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. See, even in Peter's day, they were already saying, yeah, everybody believes Jesus is going to come back in their lifetime. Peter says, listen, they are saying it. Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. And then Peter lets us in, verse 5. He says, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You say, well, wait, wait, wait. Now this just got even worse. 
First it was 2,000 years, but are you about to tell us that from God's vantage point, it's only been two days? Yeah. Oh, this is not, this is not what I was hoping for when I came out to a study of Revelation. You're supposed to tell us that, you know, it's long expired. It's only been two days from God's perspective. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Bible says that God created the world in seven days. Now, those were literal days. Seven 24-hour periods of time. We know that because God is very faithful to record in each day that there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. They were 24-hour. So don't say, Nick said it took 7,000 years to make the world. I didn't say. It was seven literal 24-hour periods of time that God spoke all of this creation into existence. However, The writer of Hebrews tells us that the works of God, which is all of what God would do throughout the whole scope of His plan for planet Earth, that the works of God were finished from the foundation of the world. That God already had it planned out in His mind from the beginning how and when He would do what He was going to do. And again, it is written that a short work will the Lord do upon the earth. That his intention was a short work upon the earth. Well, well, what's the point? Where are you going with this? Listen, everything that we read about in the Bible concerning time is broken up into periods of seven that are six and one. Six days God created the world. And then the seventh day, he rested. Six days, he said man is to work and to sow his field and to plant his vineyards. But then on the seventh day, he is to rest and do no work. Six years, you can till and plant. One year, you rest. Six years, there would be someone who was bound in slavery, a Hebrew servant. But in the seventh year, he was to go free. If you were in debt, if you had taken a loan out for six years, you were to pay off that debt. But in the seventh year, you were to be free of that debt. Even in the Passover, for six days, God said, you will eat unleavened bread and afflict your souls. But in the seventh day, there will be a solemn assembly unto the Lord. That everything with God concerning time works in the cycle of seven. Six of work, one of rest. Six of debt, one of you know, freedom. Six of slavery, one of liberty. You know, and, and there's this constant flow throughout all of Scripture. Now, in the prayer of Moses, that's recorded for us in Psalm chapter 90, his prayer is there. Regarding the creation of God and how it relates to time, Moses is the one who introduced this concept to us. He's the one that said that in his sight, a thousand years are as a day when it is past. He's the one that said it. And you read the psalm and you understand that he's talking in regards to God's creation and God's time. That a thousand years is as a day with God. And when the rabbis grabbed hold of this and understood it in the light of scripture, they taught, they believed that God's work upon the earth would consist of 6,000 years. Six days. 6,000 years wherein God would work upon the earth and then a day of rest, a thousand years of rest upon the earth. Now, it's amazing that when you plug that concept into the Genesis record, you know, of God's creation, how incredibly it fits into history. You know, we don't have time to go through and elaborate it completely, but if you take that, that a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years in his sight, and then you plug that into the Genesis record, you understand that it correlates perfectly with what God has done on the planet Earth. Those that study genealogies and formulate and figure out dates scripturally, they tell us that the creation took place about 4004 B.C. 4004 B.C. There's debate within a couple of years. Some say 4002, some say 3098, but all it's give or take, it's about 4000 B.C. that the creation is, you know, given, if you just take all of the years and dates that are given in Scripture and back it up all the way to the beginning. 4000 years in that creation. Well, a thousand years is as a day. So what does it say? You read the account in Genesis... And at the very end of the fourth day, it says that God divided the light from the darkness. 
That happened at the very end. Well, what happened at the very end of the 4,000th year? God sent his son into the world. Of whom it was written about, it said that he would come as a light, but that the darkness would comprehend it not. That he came to divide, that he is the light of the world. That he divided the light from the darkness, and John tells us that he was a light that shines in a dark place. God divided the light from the darkness at the end of the fourth day. 4,000 years into his creation. Well, if four days had passed prior to the birth of Christ, 4,000 years, let me ask you, according to the rabbi's interpretation, according to the day is as a thousand years, how many days of work are left? Two. 2,000 years from the time of Christ. Interesting to me because Jesus said these words. Some of them came from Herod, it tells us in Luke chapter 13. And they gave Jesus a warning. They said, you better go and hide because Herod is going to kill you. And Jesus gave this retort, this answer to those that would come and scare him. Luke chapter 13, verse 32. He says, go ye and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils and do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. Well, wait a minute, this wasn't prior two days, three days prior to the cross and the resurrection. This was in the midst of Jesus' ministry. What's he talking about? That for two days he's going to work upon the earth, but in the third day he'll be perfected. In the story that Jesus told a little later in the book of Luke, or I think it was actually a little bit earlier in the book of Luke, when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. He, he, you know the story. There's a man that's coming from Jericho and he falls among robbers and he's left for dead there on the side. And the Levite and the priest, they pass him by, but then the Samaritan comes. And in the story, the Samaritan is a picture of Christ. He's the one. He's the good Samaritan that picked up the broken and bloodied man, put him on his own beast and brought him to the inn. And, and he tells us there that this, this good Samaritan brought this man to the inn and that he gave to the innkeeper Two pennies, two denarii, two denarius. And he said, this will be enough to take care of this man until I come again. Well, you read a little bit more of the New Testament, you understand that a day's wage, biblically in those days, was one denarius. Well, Jesus left two. He says, I'll be back in two days. Two days from now, I'll be back. And that, this will be enough to take care of this man until I return. The prophet Hosea speaking historically of future events. Chapter 6, verse 3, Hosea writes, and he says, Come and let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. And then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. So 4,000 years or four days passed from creation to Christ, and two days have passed from Christ to the present day. Well, six days have passed. And it puts us in the very wee hours of that seventh day. Well, what happens in the seventh day? When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, there's a thousand-year period of time where there'll be peace and prosperity upon the earth, where there'll be rest from labors, where Jesus Christ will rule and reign, the Prince of Peace, that six and one, that perfect completion, that seven-day period where God will work upon the earth. It's an incredible thing to consider and to think through, especially for us in our day, as we hear John saying to us that he's showing us things which must shortly come to pass. We live in very, very prophetically significant times, saints, and we do well to take heed unto the word of prophecy that is laid out before us. God wants us to be prepared, so he's told us ahead of time what's coming. And we have great reason to see it and believe it and walk in it in our day. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the parallel passage from what Bobby is teaching on Sunday mornings, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus gives them an elaborate discourse. 
on what things to watch for and what things will happen, what things will take place upon planet Earth. And I'm not going to steal Bobby's thunder and you know go through and tell you all those things that Jesus said. You can come back on Sunday morning and, and hear those things. But listen to how Jesus concluded. And listen carefully. Because after Jesus told them everything to watch for, he said these words to his disciples. Matthew 24, verse 42. He says, watch, therefore. For you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if, that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus goes on, after giving us this warning to be ready to watch, to be waiting for his return. He says in chapter 25, verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise... And five were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there not be enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. He gives this very serious warning. He says, be ready. Be aware of what's taking place. Be watchful for the coming of the Lord. And he gives us this warning, this exhortation, and he says, make sure that you take oil in your lamp. Now, now, why would you need oil in your lamp? I mean, if you can put yourself there in that day and you're waiting for the bridegroom to come and he comes in the middle of the night and you grab your lamp and you're going out to meet the bridegroom because there's been a call, there's been a, a heralding that the bridegroom is coming. And you think to yourself, well, hey, he's coming. I don't really need much oil because he's coming. This is the time he's here. And so the, the, the lamp is trimmed, but the oil is empty. It's not really substantial there's no weight within that lamp then that servant goes out and they find that well they're waiting they're waiting but they've run out of fuel they didn't have what it took to 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 wait it out the rest of the time and their lamp goes out the reason why you would need oil in your lamp is because it might take a little bit longer than you might have thought and i serve to you tonight as one that's heralding saying listen the bridegroom cometh The hour is near. The time is at hand. The season is upon us. What the Bible has spoken is here. But if you say within your heart, my Lord delays his coming, then your lamp may be trimmed. You may be educated in understanding of the things that will happen. But within your heart, you won't be ready. Your heart will turn away after the world. The distractions of this life will choke you and consume you. And you'll find that he comes in a time when you're not aware. But Jesus does not want that for any of us. 
His desire, his heart, his will is that we know him, that we're ready, that our lamps are burning, that we understand our place in this world and in eternity to come, that we are dead and our lives are hidden with Christ and God. So therefore we to set our affections upon things above and not on the things of this world. For this world is passing away with its affections and its lusts. But him that doeth the will of God will abide forever. And so the purpose of the book is to show us the things which must shortly come to pass so that we might be ready, that we might be aware, that we might be watching for the coming of the Lord. Well, that was number one. Don't worry, that was the long one. But number two that John tells us by way of introduction here in chapter 1, in verse 3, he tells us something that is very unique to this book. He tells us that this is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those that read it, to those that hear it, and to those that keep the sayings that are contained within it. That as you read and hear, as you study, and as you commit these things within your heart and allow them to transform the way you live, that there is a special blessing attached to it. Blessed, or oh how happy, is the one that hears, that reads, that understands, that applies these things to their life. John says there's going to be a blessing. And I'm telling you, That as we go through this book, there's going to be a blessing. You're going to see things happen in your life. See things happen within this church. The blessing of God is upon this word. That's number two. See, I told you it was shorter. And then number three, and this is probably the most important thing that I'll say by way of introduction to the study of the book of Revelation. And it's found for us right there, the first sentence, chapter 1, verse 1. He says that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. A study of the book of Revelation can almost be a distraction if we're not careful. It's not to be a study of prophecy. It's not the revelation of that which will stimulate you intellectually or that will arouse your curiosities. That's not the purpose of the book. It's not where the blessing is that you're going to find. But understand that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The blessing that's attached to this book, above anything else that might come, is that it reveals Jesus Christ to us in a way that no other book in the Bible does. Not just His plan or His program for planet Earth, but it reveals to us His person. It reveals Christ to us in a way that is personal and real and embraceable and tangible for us in our own lives. Listen, do you realize that that is the thing that you need? The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize this for myself, and I hope that I continue to realize it more, is that Jesus is the thing that we need He's the one that that really satisfies the thing that's inside of us that cries out for something. Sometimes we don't even know what. He's the one that strengthens us and gives us the sustenance we need. He's the one that suffices. He is the one that fills all in all. And, And listen, it's not that when you come to Christ, then He gives you the things that you need. That's not what it is. It's that He is the very thing that you need within your life. He's the one that satisfies you. He's the one that strengthens you. He's the one that sustains and suffices you within your life. So many times we think, well, you know what, I really, I just need a different job. I've just kind of hit a dead end in this position that I'm in, and I'm kind of in a rut in my life, and I really just need to make some changes. No, that's not what you need. You think, well, you know, what I really need, especially this time of the year, is another part of the country. I really just, I I sense that cold bite coming within the air. I'm starting to feel it within my joints, you know. The days are getting shorter. My eyelids are getting heavier. You know, in fact, I see a lot of heavy eyelids out there, you know. Wake up, you know, Jesus is coming back, you know. But, you know, I need to move south. That's what I really need. You don't need to move south. My wife's going to hold that over my head later. Sometimes we think, you know what I really need I need a different history. My past, you know, the things that have happened to me, you know, my childhood or that man that I was married to or that situation that I was in or the way I got burned, that just tripped up my whole life and everything's... Listen, you don't need a different history. I just need to be married. 
Or, I just need to be single, you know? (laughs) That was a gut laugh, you know? (laughs) Or if only I was rich. If only I just had enough money to just not have to worry about that part of life anymore. That's what I really need. Listen, no, it isn't. It's not what you need. You need Jesus Christ. That's what you need within your life. That is what will satisfy you, will cause you to really live. I always think of Genesis chapter 15. And it both encourages me and it challenges me. Because right there, here's this man, Abraham, who the Bible holds up as the father of faith. And God comes to this man after he's had an incredible victory in his life. And God looks at Abraham and he speaks to his heart and he says, Fear not, Abraham, for I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I am your shield and I am your exceeding great reward. And Abraham responds the way I respond. He says, yes, Lord, but what are you going to give me? (laughs) Seeing that I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. No, 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 Abraham, you missed it. It's not what you're going to get from God. It's not what God is going to do in your life. It's the fact that God is in your life. He is the one. I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. I'm the one you need. Abraham, I am it. And you have me. Abraham, look up. It's me that you have. When Jesus walked the earth, Mary and Martha, we see them. We see ourselves in them as as Jesus is there within their house. And Martha, oh, I've got to serve him. I've got to please him. I've got to impress him so so that maybe he'll look at me. Maybe he'll bless me. But Mary, no. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. She appreciated the fact that he was giving himself to her. And Jesus rewarded her by saying to Martha, listen, Martha, you're troubled and cumbered about many things. But listen. One thing is needful. Listen, saint, the Lord speaks to you right now. One thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, and it shall not be taken from her. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's what we need. It's the revelation of Christ that's going to cause us to begin to live. It's the revelation of Christ that's going to lift us up out of the funk that we're in. It's the revelation of Christ in our lives that's going to cause joy to well up within us like a well, like a fountain. It's Jesus that we need. And that's the blessing that's attached to the book. It's that it reveals Christ to us. It shows us Jesus in a real, in a living way. And it's the thing that we need. I think that if we were honest, there's some of us here tonight that would say, you know, I hear what you're saying. And I, I'm guilty. You're right. I'm not satisfied just having Christ in my life. I I know I have Christ. I know I'm saved. I've responded to the gospel. I've sensed his work within my life. But there is a discontentedness. There is somewhat of a misery, somewhat of a darkness within me. And and you know what? I'm not satisfied truthfully, honestly, just having Christ within my life. Well, listen, let me tell you this. If you're not satisfied having Christ in your life, just Christ and nothing else, on earth, I guarantee you, though you could write your own circumstances out to the best of your perfection, you wouldn't be content in those circumstances either. Because there is nothing on this earth that can satisfy you. There's no amount of money. There's no position. There's no place on the planet. There's no inheritance that you can gain. There is nothing on this side of eternity that will satisfy you the need that you have. But Jesus promises. He says, I am your reward. I am your shield. I'm the one that's satisfied. When we see heaven at the end of this book, heaven isn't about streets of gold or gates of jewels. Heaven is about Jesus. When you see the people that are in heaven, they're casting their crowns before Jesus. When you hear what they're saying, the words are songs of praise that they're singing on bended knee before the throne of Jesus. The the, the streets of gold are there. The mansions that Jesus spoke of are present. The city, the gates, the walls of gold and of precious stones and of everything that's beautiful to the eye, it's all there, but nobody cares. When you see the throne, when you see what's going on in heaven, it's Jesus that they're looking towards. Everything's about Him. The Bible says that there's no sun and there's no moon there because He, Jesus, is the light of the place. That the water that satisfies comes from the throne. 
That there's no more curse and that the throne of God and of the Lamb are in it. That that's the solution to the curse. That there's no night and no need of a candle because the Lord gives the light. And the Bible says that they shall see His face. And there is infinitely more spoken of heaven concerning Christ than there is of the things that are there. The only thing it says about the city is the foundation and the streets. Who cares? When's the last time you walked up to a building and you were like, what's the foundation made out of? It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Life is about Jesus. Eternity is about Jesus. Heaven is about Jesus. And when we get there, that is the only thing that will matter to us. And if you can grasp that, if you can get it, if there's one thing that you take away from this study of Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, then I promise you that you'll begin experiencing heaven on earth. Because you realize that heaven isn't so much a place as it is a person. It's the person of Christ. And that's what it means to be prepared for His return. Is that our affections are no longer aimed at and placed upon the things of this world, but that our affections are placed upon Jesus Christ. That He is our reward. He is our shield. He's the thing that we need. He's the one that's satisfied. And He's coming back. And that we will be in His presence. As we close tonight, Lori's going to come and she's going to close us in song. And I'm going to stand aside. I'm going to exit out the door over there and I'm going to give place for the Spirit to move within your heart here tonight. The front of the church will be open for you to come and bend your knees before God Almighty. Not before a man. No one's going to come and pray for you or lay hands on you. But the front of church will be open for you to just come and get on your knees before God and ready your heart for His return. Some of you here tonight are discontented within your spirit. You're guilty of seeking other means of being satisfied. You say it's not enough. Jesus, yes, I know you. Yes, I love you. Yes, I'm looking forward to heaven. But in reality, I know that there's something else in my heart that's taken that place of highest affection. Would you come tonight before the Lord and lay it before Him and say, God, be my life, be my salvation, be my all. Some of you tonight here that you've said within your heart, my Lord delayeth His coming. And the direct result of that is that you've compromised. There's areas of sin within your life, things that you have given yourself over to that you're ashamed of and that if Jesus were to come back right now, you would be ashamed of before Him at His coming. Things that you would never do if he was here in your presence. What a better time to get right. To just lay those things at the foot of the cross. Come to Christ tonight. And ask him and say, Jesus, would you be my life? Would you be my satisfaction? Would you be my all? May God's spirit minister to your heart as we close in this song. In Jesus' name.